Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Doers and Shakers podcast. I am your host, Hannah Holmboom Brady. There's a new name at the end of my name. That's pretty exciting. Hey, so this episode, I have someone with me. It's a hang session today, and it couldn't be more exciting. I have Dustin Rabin. He is originally from British Columbia. He now resides in Toronto, Canada, but he shoots all over New York, LA, in between and beyond. He has photographed people from the Beastie Boys to Paul McCartney. He's photographed Eminem, Jay-Z, actresses, actors of all scale. I don't just throw all of that out to be a flashy podcast host about who's famous and why we're talking. I say that because the magnitude and large scale of this artist is blowing me away. When I found his work on Instagram, I was immediately magnetized, drawn in to the refreshing work. His off-the-charts black-and-white work is astounding. Check out the show notes to start following him and view his photography because it's incredibly wildly inspiring. Whether you are a photographer, entrepreneur, or just a collector of art, you're going to want to hang something from him. His stories are just so down-to-earth. He is so easy to connect with. He has some great advice, some great storylines, and even better one-to-one heartfelt reasoning as to why you should take charge of your life. Do it, do whatever it takes to get wherever you want because he's done some pretty outstanding work. Without further ado, the next session, the next hang session, I should say, with my guest, Dustin Rabin. All right, here we go. Our stage pass, our backstage pass, directly with none other than the Dustin Rabin. I am very stoked, as you can tell in the intro. I have been scrolling Instagram, clicking links, viewing all the things all over the internet of his work, wildly magnetic, and it is extremely refreshing in a day and age where we are scrolling so much content to stop and be pulled in by photographs from a creative realm that just feels authentic. So Dustin, what's up? How's it going, Hannah? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. In true doers and shakers fashion, I bring on people that I feel as though could tell a story to inspire and collectively ignite other people, whether they're wanting to jumpstart something that feels taboo or foreign or scary, or maybe they're in the thick of things and they could just use some advice from someone that's rocking and rolling like you. So thank you. My pleasure. I feel like we have a lot to unpack in this episode. So many things to talk about. Um, For those of you listening, Dustin and I chatted a few minutes before and which then led to an hour conversation almost uh, with unpacking so many things of what it's like to work in the world of art and being a professional photographer and coming off with confidence and not bragging uh, what it's like to not chase the dollar, but chase the passion. So we're going to unpack all of that, but I want to jump right in to how and why you got to the point where you did where Paul McCartney is asking you to be his personal photographer. Oh, man. Um, I thought you were going to start with an easy, like, let's just start with something simple. No way. Let's ignite um, right from the I start. I have to go 
I mean, do you want to know how that conversation happened or just like everything that led up to it? Because the, it's pretty much everything that I had done before that that led up to that happening. I, so I don't know where you want to start. <laughs> I want to I want to leave people on their seats for a hot second and just like for them to hear how just like the just a little bit about how he called or how you even got contacted. And then okay. we're going to like rewind so that people really know how you got here. Um, well, to be to be fair, he he has a, a personal photographer. His name is MJ Kim, and he is amazing. He's been with Paul for probably 10 or 12 years, um, which makes what happened with me even that much more special in, in my mind. Um, he really only has one photographer. And I didn't know that. I figured he probably did, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, and a friend of mine, his name is Steve. He is a publicist for some of my favorite bands ever since, you know, uh, probably since the 80s. Like I've known, I had known him since the early 90s. And I read online that he had just become Paul McCartney's publicist for North America. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, this could get me one step closer to my ultimate dream which was always you know people would interview me and say you know who haven't you worked with yet that you want to work with and instantly Paul McCartney that was my answer every time and so I thought okay well maybe this could actually lead to something so I didn't really know what to expect but I did reach out to Steve and I said hey man I know it's a long shot I want to congratulate you on getting uh, the contract with Paul and uh, but I know this is a long shot as far as working with him, but I would love it if you could just somehow show him my work at some point. Um, and I guess the realistic goal at that point was I wanted to tell my mom, hey, Paul McCartney looked at my work, you know, and anything beyond that would just be incredible. And I don't even remember how long after, maybe a few months, I got an email from Steve just saying, hey, good news, Paul wants you to come to New York and Montreal at the end of this week. And I was like, what? So I reread the email just to make sure that I read it properly. And I guess he, hmm, I don't know how, where to start. So like I said, he had his full-time photographer, but I guess he had been shown my work and was taken by some aspect of it enough to say I'd like to see what he could do at one of my shows so he brought me along in addition to his photographer for two nights uh, at Yankee Stadium in New York which we can get to this later but my dad's from New York and I've been a Yankee fan my whole life so this whole story was just like blowing my mind because of where it happened and then uh, a few days in Montreal after that which was amazing. So I, I went down there. Um, I put my stuff in the hotel room. I think it was a Friday night before the Saturday night show. And I went to Yankee Stadium because I heard he was doing his uh, production rehearsals and sound check and everything because it was early on in the tour, I believe. So I showed up and Steve brought me in and um, I was just kind of hanging out in the seats in center field at Yankee Stadium, which, like I said, just to be standing on the field at Yankee Stadium to me was was a, a dream in and of itself. And I look over, I'm like, oh man, there's Paul McCartney, that's crazy. And he was standing with Steve, and he they start walking towards me, and he's like, Steve, uh, Dustin, this is Paul. Paul, this is Dustin. He's like, fantastic work, man. I'm so happy that you came out. 
I'm like, whoa, thank, yeah, thank you. Your, your work's amazing too. You know, like, what do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. And at that point, it was like, he was just so nice and so welcoming. He said, whatever you want to do for the next week, I'm totally cool with you. You have carte blanche, you can go wherever you want. And even bands that I work with regularly, I don't really have that kind of agreement with like technically, yeah, they would let me go wherever I want, but I don't really take advantage of that and really go anywhere on the stage. But he was like being very honest. He said, whatever you want to do, you're only here for a few days, um, have fun. And from that point on, I didn't feel the least bit starstruck because he was just a really awesome guy who was very welcoming. And I knew that he knew me or knew of my work ahead of time. So it's not like it was, oh, who's this guy here taking pictures? He sort of just welcomed me with open arms. And just as amazingly, his photographer, MJ, was completely welcoming. I thought it would be a weird thing where, you know, you don't want... Um, somebody kind of like on your turf so to speak but he was just like here let me show you where's a good spot to take pictures during this song and that song and don't worry I'll get out of your way you're only here for a couple days and I'm with them all the time so you can you know I'll let you go wherever you want and that went all the way up to security as security guard at, at the beginning of the show um I said I'd really love to go kind of like behind the guitar amp somewhere on the stage to get a picture of Paul walking out in the big crowd at Yankee Stadium. And the security guard kind of like put his hands up and was like, hey, don't let me get in your way. Whatever you got to do, you're only here for a few days. I don't want to be the one that prevents you from getting what you need. And this is his personal security. So it was, it was very, the way that they operate is once you're in there, you're in. And if you've already kind of passed that audition, like I didn't feel like I had to prove myself once I was there, I'd already sort of done that before even arriving. And it was just so amazing to know that I wouldn't get yelled at by somebody for going somewhere. You know, I didn't take advantage and go everywhere, but I really felt comfortable. Like everybody on that crew from the top to bottom just made me feel welcome from the moment that I, I set foot in the stadium. Um, so there was this moment where I, you know, he kind of said, yeah, you can go over there. There's no real space behind the guitar amps because there's a whole bunch of other stuff, but there's a gap in between two of the speakers right in front of the drums. You can go hang out in there, but you got to go now because as soon as he's on stage, you can't, you, the only way to get there is to walk across the stage. So I ran out there and I'm like crouching down between these two speakers in front of 50,000 people and Paul McCartney comes out and I get these great pictures of him waving out to the crowd and shot the first song and I was like oh my god what how the hell do I get out of here like as soon as I move everyone's gonna see me and I'm gonna get yelled at and I'm gonna you know it's just gonna be embarrassing I just thought you know because I'm very I tend to really hide out in the shadows on stage I don't like being seen at all so the fact that I was I had nothing to block me from the audience I was a little bit nervous about what to do once that song ends um, the song ends and I just kind of like bolted and ran to the side and I jumped up on top of a speaker that was behind a, a curtain and I just sat there for a minute and I actually started to cry because I was just like this is too much it, it was so much more than just Paul McCartney it was uh, my, my dad will get into this later but my dad passed away you know years and years before and he'd raised me a Yankees fan and his family's all from New York City and 
just the fact that I'm listening to Paul McCartney standing on stage in center field at Yankee Stadium was a little bit overwhelming. And I just kind of wept for a minute and I let it sink in. And then I went back to work and, and every single moment of it was like the greatest moment of my life. Mm. That is the most beautiful story. And that is exactly why I wanted to open this episode with that, because I wanted to set the tone for everybody listening that a shot in the dark, something on a large scale, like you messaging and seeing if you could shoot Paul McCartney in a set and and not having any idea what would happen and not knowing the outcome, but you did it because you wanted it, you went after it, is the entire point of my mission setting out this doers and shakers platform that we have to leap because it could lead to stories like that. And thank you for sharing that with us, Dustin. I'm wildly like inspired and lit up by that story. Um, so thank you. No, it's, it's My pleasure is just, uh, I wasn't expecting that one right off the bat. So I was like, Oh my God, am I rambling? This is cause it's a, it's kind of a crazy story. <laughs> I mean, there, there was even a point where he has his piano up on a riser uh, just kind of next to the drummer. Most of the time he's standing in the front, in the middle, obviously playing bass and singing. But when he goes to play piano, he has to walk towards the back of the stage and up three or four steps to his piano. And I didn't really know when he was going to be doing that. So I was sitting on the steps that lead to his piano and he starts walking towards me and the spotlight starts moving towards me. I'm like, oh shit, oh shit. And he looks at me, he pats me on the back and he's like, you having a good time? And then he just smiled and went up to the piano and I just kind of thought okay well this is gonna be fun wow and then yeah just <laughs> hung out hung out next to him while he played piano and it was just totally surreal yeah I can't even imagine not even just as a photographer but like as a human being who knows his music and knows his legacy it's like how do you how do you even process being next to him and and given the opportunity to present your photos when it's all said and done, I can't even imagine the editing process, like sitting there, like, holy shit, I did this. Like, this is happening. These are my photos for him. Well, yeah. And there was the, there was a moment during soundcheck that was, it was the first opportunity I had to photograph him with soundcheck during the afternoon on Saturday. And, you know, the, the way that the stage was is where if you're on stage looking out, you're facing the infield of Yankee Stadium and with the, the stanchions up over the top, I think that's what they're called, uh, that kind of line the outside of the of the top of the, the grandstands. It's just such an iconic thing for Yankee Stadium. I'm looking out at that and Paul McCartney's in the foreground and I'm taking pictures of him. And at one point he kind of stopped playing and he came over and he was facing me and I got a picture of him looking right at me with the, with Yankee Stadium in the background and that was to me, that was like, oh shit, okay, well, I'm done. Like, I can't do anything more cool than that. And I thought, I, I, as it was happening, I was already realizing how important these pictures would be to me. Mm. And, um, and another interesting thing is that while I was holding my camera, I have a tattoo on my forearm with some writing, and you can sort of, I guess, when I'm holding my arm and it's sort of laid out horizontal when I'm holding the camera, you can read what's on my arm. So he was, he was coming up close to read it and I'm taking pictures of him and he's like, Oh wow, that's really cool. What does it say? And I was like, Oh, it's uh, where stillness and movement are together as one. And it has these birds flying and it's a really beautiful thing. And he goes, uh, did you make that up? And I said, no, my grandmother did. She's 
lives in Brooklyn. She's lived here her whole life. She's like 94, 95. And uh, she wrote this because she was inspired by what I do, by, by freezing a, a, a moving moment kind of thing. And uh, he goes, wow, your grandma sounds really cool. Mm. And he's just like, everything that he says just makes you feel good. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it's, it sounds like some incredible connections were made in that moment. Like those magical in-between moments that like, if you either get it or you don't. And some people face those moments, almost like this, like out of body experience um, for him to like recognize something on your arm and for you to communicate with someone like him about your grandma. Like that's, these are the stories that we need to be sharing with one another that things are possible and things can happen if you just like start and you do. And um, I hope everyone listening to this story in one way, shape or form, you're like, okay, if he can do that, then I can do X, Y, and Z. So <laughs> that leads me to wanting to back up a little and start about your story and how you got started. What even brought you to pick up a camera? Like, like fast, you know, bring us back to that. Um, okay, well, my dad was a filmmaker, photographer. He worked in every aspect of film, like, you know, from behind the camera to uh, doing, you know, location managing and, and assistant directing, directing, like he kind of did everything. And so I was always around that as a kid. Um, and then I sort of, as I was, you know, getting a little bit older, maybe, I don't know, 10 years old or something, I was still a little kid, but I realized that he went to school for photography at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And so I thought, oh, okay, you know, he's also a photographer. So I picked up his camera that he, it was an old Minolta that he bought for my mom. And I remember asking him how to use it. And he kind of gave me the basics of aperture and uh, ISO and shutter speed and everything. And I remember going out and shooting some film to test all of those concepts that I learned, like the bigger the aperture, the shallower the depth of field and uh, the slower the shutter speed, you can get some motion. And I was probably like, I think 11 or 12 at this point. And I just remember being so fascinated that when you're looking through the viewfinder, everything kind of looks the same, but depending on how you have the settings, the depth of field can be wildly different uh, in the final photograph. And so, I don't know, I always experimented with that and enjoyed taking pictures. Um, and then I went to college. It was just like a community college where I grew up in Victoria, BC. And they had a communications program there that ultimately, it wasn't filmmaking, but it was video. Like one of the components was video, but it was more like for TV and it wasn't exactly what I thought it was gonna be. But that's sort of why I was there to just learn more about motion picture. But once I got there, there was also an, uh, an option to take um, black and white film developing. And so for the project for that, we had to do uh, we had to shoot a roll of film so that we had something to develop. And they, so they wanted us to use the different techniques with depth of field and motion blur and all that. And I thought, oh man, I already know how to do this. I did it when I was 12 with my dad, you know, so it all felt really familiar. And the exciting part of it for me was the going in the dark room and developing a roll of film and then making prints and seeing that process happen in real time to, to this day, I mean, 30 some odd years later, I still think it's magic. I think it's more mind blowing than uh, how digital cameras work 
um, just knowing how both of them, both processes happen, the, the analog version of it is still more magical to me because it's a physical process with like silver particles and different chemicals. And it's just, it, yeah, I just think it's magic. Mm. So I did that. And um, I think halfway through my first year, there was, we also had a radio component to the program. So we had a, a closed circuit radio station that literally nobody could hear because there was one speaker that worked in the cafeteria and it was always turned off. So uh, it was just, I don't know, it, it was kind of weird. But um, we got some mail in to the program addressed to the music director, who was my friend Al Ford, uh, who was one year ahead of me in the class. And he made me the assistant music director because he, he saw that I was really into music and everything. So I opened the mail and it was this magazine. It was like a, a black and white fanzine printed on newsprint and it was called Slur. And it was from Edmonton, Alberta, which is, you know, uh, I don't even know how far from where I was, but it's like probably a three, four hour flight at least. And they were just sending their stuff out to all the universities and all the campuses in Canada that had a music program or radio program or uh, any kind of journalism. And they were looking for submissions. They said, hey, if you guys want to write uh, or take pictures for our magazine, let us know. You know, we can't pay, but we'll be glad to give you an outlet to, to get your stuff published and so I stayed in touch with them and I it was it was a way to get photo passes for shows and the first time that I ever took pictures at a concert I wasn't even expecting to be doing that it wasn't something I aspired to do or thought oh someday I'm going to take pictures of concerts it was just almost an accident the way it happened um, it's a band called 5440 from Vancouver BC and they were fairly big band in Canada but especially the west coast where I lived and uh, I got to do a phone interview with one of the guys when they were releasing a new album and the interview was was ahead of their show in my town and they said uh, the record label said do you want a photo pass for the show and I was like oh okay I don't even know sure I guess so and so they gave me tickets and a photo pass and I took pictures for the first three songs and the the they're just absolutely horrible. Like I had like maybe one good picture, but it's cause I didn't know what I was doing literally. Like I didn't know how stage lighting worked and how to, how to expose properly for flashing lights. And it was just something I'd never done before. Um, but then I, I processed the film myself in the lab at school and I printed a few prints and it was just like, Oh wow, that was, that was actually really fun. And so I reached out to Slur anytime there was any kind of a show happening uh, in my neck of the woods that I thought they might be interested in. And I think the next thing that I shot, honestly, was Lollapalooza 93, perhaps. Um, and Alice in Chains were playing. And I think, I don't remember who else is on that bill, but they were sort of like the big one for me. And I reached out to the magazine. They said, yeah, sure. So they got me a photo pass and I shot that. And then I started using them to get me photo passes for other shows. Um, I know this sounds like a really long rambling story, but no, it's I great. Just, I just kind of wanted to mention that, you know, I didn't go to school for photography. I went for, for motion picture mostly, and it just turned into like accidentally a photography career. Mm. Um, and so I was just doing it because to me, going, having access to big rock shows of my favorite bands was good enough for me but then being able to be in the pit in the front like two feet away from these huge rock stars that i'd idolized 
and and to take pictures of them and to have those to hold on to forever after the show was just so exciting to me that I thought, okay, well, this is something that I want to do whenever I can, just for fun, just for the experience. And so I was doing it on the side, but I was also working in film. I did a lot of PA work um, on commercials and TV shows in Victoria. I got worked on a couple of feature films. And then right in the middle of all that, when I was really starting to work full time in film, uh, my dad died and it just completely shattered you know my life obviously in so many ways and one of the big changes was I remember I got the first job that I took after having grieved and just sort of tried to you know get my life back in order um, was for a commercial and I get there and it was all people that my dad knew so I was just reminded again that he was gone. Everyone was talking to me, you know, he's such a great man. And I worked with him for years and all these beautiful, lovely memories. But to me, it was so overwhelming to be the one there that actually lost a dad. And, you know, it was really hard for me to, to relive that um, at work. You know, you think the work should be something to take your mind off of things and it's separate from your personal life or whatever, but it was so intertwined that I just decided this isn't for me. And I decided to leave that life, like just sort of for a while anyway, just leave film. And I had a bunch of part-time jobs and uh, I ended up getting a full-time job in a record store, which was like the classic thing for someone who was 21, 22, who loved music. It was just like, I'm gonna get a job at a record store. And it was great because it was, it was a small enough store that, you know, I think there were four full-time employees and we knew each other really well and we could cover for each other. So every time there was a show in Vancouver, um, I would take the day off and switch with someone and go shoot a show. And Vancouver is like, it's either a plane ride or a ferry ride from Victoria because Victoria is on Vancouver Island, which is an island obviously. So it's, it's, uh, it's not like a quick drive over. The whole thing, if you take public transit with the ferry and buses, was five hours each way. And the last one leaves at 9 p.m. So if you go see a show, you have to stay overnight. So it was automatically like a, at least a 24-hour commitment. So um, I was really lucky that I had friends that I worked with who could cover for me because they knew that that was my sort of my goal was to move more towards photography. And I did that for a few more years and started to get published in some magazines that could pay like 50 bucks or hundred bucks, but most importantly, they could get me um, access to these shows. And then uh, towards the mid, I guess, mid nineties, late nineties, I started to shoot some bigger bands and, um, and it just took off from there. And by, I think 99, I quit my job and moved to Toronto and made a go at it. Wow. So you've kind of been all around, up and down, but all. In yeah, I mean, it, it, it didn't really, it definitely didn't happen overnight. And I think the reason for that is that I didn't even look at it as some, as a way to make money. I didn't look at it even as a full-time job or a career. It was just something that I had other jobs to make money, to be able to sustain this hobby. Um, and then I think around yeah, 90, probably 95, 96, I started to get more serious about it. And then 
I started to shoot more and really reach out to record labels and really reach out to magazines. And then around 98, I started to get some paying jobs. And then 99, I thought, okay, well, this commute to Vancouver is ridiculous. Um, and Vancouver isn't as big of a hub as Toronto. It, all the record labels are based in Toronto. Um, even though they had branch offices in Vancouver, they weren't the ones that were making the creative decisions for album artwork and stuff like that. So I moved to Toronto and that was really the beginning. And that was at the end of 99. So it was like a good seven year journey between the very first time and thinking like, okay, let's, let's do this. Yeah. And I, I think telling your story from beginning to end, like to you, it can sound like it's dragging on, but I think it's an important thing to share with everyone because you made a good point. You kind of said like things kind of fell into my lap as I went throughout the process and it wasn't a plan to do this and it wasn't a plan to do that. It just kind of unfolded. And I think that's a very important point to make because sometimes when we just start and we don't really have a plan, but we know that we want to like roll within a different aspect of what we can get into things kind of just happen and unfold naturally and organically and and if, without like doing and starting something you don't know what could fall in your lap so your story is a perfect example of that and you know you're talking about your early on time of picking up a camera like obviously I'm a photographer so like that was a juicy story for me and anyone <laughs> listening that has a camera like can relate to that I was trying to find like a lot of your earlier work and I stumbled upon like a really early piece it's Johnny Depp and you wrote you were 15 oh, years old like on the set of 21 Jump Street or something like talk about that moment did you even understand the scale of like what you were shooting I did but it, again it just it clearly wasn't like oh I, this is a make or break moment for my career I was 15 you know and it wasn't even a, a thought of a working in film is something that I wanted to do so I really looked at that as an opportunity like oh man you know I got I got to meet people who work on 21 Jump Street and just sort of make the best of this opportunity um and then Johnny Depp ended up just being fucking super cool and he was only a few years older than us he was maybe 20 I think and um the way that it happened is my my friend Eddie that I was in grade 10 with his mom taught at uh this military college in Victoria which basically the main building of it is a huge old castle and it gets used a lot for film and 21 Jump Street were filming in Vancouver but they wanted to shoot a scene at this castle in Victoria so they came over for three days and my friend's mom's like you'll never believe it Johnny Depp's coming to town and 21 Jump Street was like our favorite show that was on TV at the time so she said yeah just go up to the front gate and tell them that you're coming to see your mom and you'll you'll be in and then we get in there, we say hi to his mom, and she's like, okay, see you guys at the end of the day. And so we just wandered around and we sort of hung out. I don't know how they let us do this, but the two of us just hung out pretty much right behind where the cameras were and watched them film an entire episode of one of the biggest shows on TV. I, wow. I still don't understand why we were allowed to just sit there, but everybody was cool. Um, Johnny Depp walks by and we introduced ourselves to him. He's like, oh, hey, guys, you're going to be here for the whole time. We're like, yeah, we're skipping school for the next three days. And he thought that was super cool that we were skipping class to come hang out. <laughs> and then at the very end, he was on his way out. And I was like, hey, man, do you mind if I get a picture of you, like just like a portrait of you? He goes, yeah, sure. Where do you want to do it? And I said, well, there's a director's chair over there. It says 21 Jump Street on the back. It'd be great if you could sit in it. 
with the back of the chair facing us so I could see the 21 Jump Street logo and you can kind of be like turned halfway looking towards the camera over your shoulder. And so next thing you know, I look back at it now and I was actually like directing Johnny Depp on how to pose in this chair to get the shot that I wanted. And I was like a little kid. And also the scene took place at a wedding. So he was wearing a tuxedo and the whole thing was just like too good to be true. So I got this great picture of him. And on the way out, he sort of like walked us out to his car and he signed some stuff. He took a picture with me and my friend and, and, uh, just kind of said, I'll see you later. And it just felt like it, it felt natural, but it, it just, I also realized the scope of what had just happened. And it was sort of like a, the spark of like, oh yeah, definitely. I want to work in film. Like it just solidified everything that I had grown up believing that I wanted, but never really experienced at that level yet. So mm. I guess I'm not really fascinated with celebrity as far as personal lives and all that garbage and yeah it's more just like I'm fascinated by watching these people that I see on tv mm-hmm. acting and seeing how it's made and yeah and no I think yeah no sorry I, keep going I love that you brought that up because I and I've said this on a couple other episodes it's like I always make it a point to say that anyone that I bring on that has has any kind of status or has you know come in contact with celebrities or famous people artists things like that it's like that 100% is fascinating and it's incredible because of the scale of the moment and who they are, but as an artist, so musician, photographer, painter, all these different people that I've had on the podcast that have a level of fame or around a level of fame, it's not so much like name dropping, it's, it's telling these stories that include these people because of the magnitude of those moments that those opportunities that come apart, because in this world and in society, when people think about being around famous people or in the limelight or on a set or anything like that, it's like, that's impossible. I could never do that. That's not even in the realm of my thought. Like we have our normal Mm -hmm. lives and then they live these big lives on a pedestal. So as an artist, I know for myself and you and I had chatted a little bit this on the phone, when we hold our camera and we're photographing anybody, um, I can remember a time that I was shooting on the red carpet and I, I, I was like, how did I even end up here? But in the moment, it's like, I was seeing, you know, these famous actresses and actors that I was shooting, but in the moment of shooting them, it's not that they're famous. It has nothing to do with it. It's like making a connection of how large this moment is with 50,000 people behind you, or, you know, you know, this is going to be on TV or it's all these things that, make the excitement of the magic that you are pausing that moment with your camera to forever show forever. And I think for you, it's probably (laughs) incredible to see these people and at 15 to see Johnny Depp. But I love that. (laughs) I love that you brought up that it's like, it's not even necessarily like their status because at the end of the day, they're literally just like us in a way. Um, But it's the fact that you're given a moment in time to like share your art with this person or capture someone like Paul McCartney on stage where they're connecting with you and and you get to use your art for that. So I love to make that point because I I never want anyone to listen to this thinking that I'm the Doers and Shakers Foundation and and process is like, how do we get to a famous level? It's not that. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we get to a level of of heightened magnitude or that heightened magic state where we're doing something so fucking outrageously awesome that feels out of touch, but knowing that we can get there. 
So, I mean, yeah, I still, honestly, I, I still have these moments where I pinch myself to this day. I've been doing this this year, this October will be 30 years since that first show that I got that photo pass for. And I still, it's like this enormous level of appreciation for uh, the access and the uniqueness of something that I get to see. I don't, I never, ever take things lightly like, oh yeah, big deal. I worked with Paul McCartney. So this other thing I'm doing is nothing. It's like, no, if I'm, doesn't matter who the band is, if they're famous or if I just love their music or they're friends of mine or whatever, I always just appreciate being there and being like, man, I can't believe that this is so fun. Like this is something that I would never have imagined I could ever do and I'm doing it and I love it. And it's, I don't think that will ever go away because it's not just the, appreciation of the magnitude it's also um just realizing that i'm at the core of it i'm watching my favorite band perform from two feet away and i can just hang out here and not worry about getting smushed in the crowd and you know i'm done with mosh pits and crowd surfing and all that i did all that and it's still fun every once in a while but really it's nice to just be able to sit on the side and enjoy a show and i feel like just lucky that I'm able to even do that and then the taking pictures is just the bonus it's it's like a yeah I just I don't know it's a weird thing because without sounding braggy like we were talking about earlier every time I talk about my job I feel like it's just name dropping but it's it, it Queens of the Stone Age played at an arena here in Toronto and I'd known them for a little while so I was I was in there uh, dressing room before just hanging out and then when they were getting ready to go on they just started playing like some acoustic just unplugged version of some songs just to warm up before they went out and no one else was there and no one told me to leave so I just kind of sat in the corner and I took a few pictures but I also just sat there thinking like oh shit there's like an arena full of people that are dying to see these guys play and they're playing my favorite song right in front of me and no one even knows and it's just it's not like a, a showy thing or oh I'm so cool because I get to do this it's just this deep gratitude for like wow I'm gonna just sit here and enjoy this because holy fuck there's not a lot of people that get to be here I don't understand why I was the chosen one to be able to sit here tonight but I feel just enjoy it you know yeah yeah I, it's, it's I, too much to come from being a kid in a little town to being to having the experiences that I've had is just almost overwhelming so when you're there you just really want to sit and appreciate it and not not think about anything else absolutely and you want to share it it's like in the art world no matter the medium no matter what scale you're on it's like it's not from a braggy point it's from like let me share this with you and like an artistic brain and body and the whole makeup of an artist I feel like is we get so excited and so jammed up and so like thrilled with anything that makes us feel a certain way. Like we're such emotional beings when it comes to our art. And so to avoid sounding braggy, you know, like I think a lot of us cover up by saying like, well, I don't mean to like brag, I just wanna share this with you or I'm posting this and how do I word it so I don't sound braggy or how do I, you know, share all this content without sounding like, look at me. But I think that we should all have a better understanding that when someone is so passionate about something and they're truly driven to do something and then they achieve it and they're in that thick of that moment, sharing it with the world should never be seen as braggy. It should be like a hell yeah moment. Like 
give me more of that magic. How did you do it? Like share it with me. And um, so I appreciate you saying that. I think it's a really important subject to touch on in any, whether you're an entrepreneur, an artist or launching a business, we all have imposter syndrome. Sometimes we're all worried that we're like not good enough to do this or talk about it. Um, and so I think that's a subject that, I don't know. I think that's a, a budding episode for me. I think I need to get into that bragging versus uh, uh, confidence. So I well, wanna... it's, a, it's a balance. Yeah. It's also a balance because in a way, being a freelance photographer, you have to sell yourself to get mm. the next job. So you have to show, you know, even if you feel uncomfortable or think that some people think you're just showing off, it's like, no, this is what I do. And I need to, you know, this is how I get my work is by showing past work. And um, yeah, that's just something that you, I don't know, when you're kind of an introvert like myself, it's, um, yeah, it, it's funny. Like my friends keep telling me, oh, you keep selling yourself short. Like whenever, whenever I get introduced to a friend of a friend and they ask me what I do and I start talking and they're like, oh, okay, he's just being modest. Really, he's worked with blah, 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 blah. And I always find that uncomfortable, but when it comes to marketing myself to record labels or management companies or whatever, you know, obviously I go full on and show off every great thing I've ever done because that's the only way to get them to hire you. Yeah. But on a, just on a social level, it's very, I always find it an awkward conversation. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of a bummy subject. It's kind of too bad that like we're shaped into like, okay, go into your shell. Don't, don't say too much about yourself when really like, mm-hmm we should celebrate ourselves more, but I think our, we're just wired to like tone it down constantly. Um, unless we are marketing ourselves, we got to tone it way the fuck up. But yeah. like when we, when we, you know, when we are meeting the next Joe or whatever, just like a random person, we kind of tone it down a little bit. Um, so that kind of just, that made me think of something uh, I was reading. You landed a cover of Rolling Stones magazine. Like, yes. I feel like we have to talk about that, like to walk us through that process. Cause I feel like that was probably a moment where you're like, if you're getting introduced as a friend, like, oh, you're a photographer. Cool. But like, no, like I was on the Rolling Stone, you know, like, yeah, was that, it, like- it's, I mean, Rolling Stone for me, that was, I remember when my parents got divorced, I was 11 and I was uh, living with my mom and one of our neighbors sort of knew both of our parents and knew how hard it was for me. And they said, here's some, you know, I thought you might be interested in these magazines. And she gave me like some spin and Rolling Stone magazines to check out. And I was like, wow, man, Rolling Stone, like I'd heard of it, but I hadn't really checked it out. And I was 11 at the time. And then I just started buying all these Rolling Stone magazines because the covers were cool. And my favorite band was on the cover. I'd get to read this really great long story about them. And I guess coming from that place, but also just as a music photographer in general, the cover of Rolling Stone was like the Holy Grail. Um, and it's a very long story about how it happened. And I, I'll, I'll make it as short as I can. Otherwise, you won't have time to talk about anything else because it was just such a weird process. Basically, what happened was um, there was a band called Them Cricket Vultures, which was Dave Grohl. Uh, Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, which is just like the greatest supergroup of all time is actually, I think, the subtitle of what they call that piece in the magazine. Um, and I had known, I had known those guys from working with them before and I'd known Dave and Josh for years before that band formed just through Queens and, and Foo Fighters. So I go to see them play in Vancouver 
or sorry, Vancouver in Toronto. And I walk up to their dressing room and Dave's like, dude, you have your camera, right? And I said, yeah, why? He goes, I need you to take a picture of us for the cover of Rolling Stone. It's like, what the fuck? We're like right here right now. He's like, yeah, we, we did a shoot uh, a few weeks ago and it didn't turn out well. Uh, we didn't know the photographer and, and we told the magazine to hold off because we want to get you to shoot it. And I'm like, uh, okay, but you understand that, you know, they have to have a clean background and to put the, the, the masthead and the titles and all, you know, you can't just shoot it in a dark uh, dressing room like that's cool for editorial on the inside of the magazine but the, they're not going to take a picture of uh, if we shoot it in this room they're not going to put it on the cover basically that's what I said and he said okay well I just wanted to throw it out there because I you know I want to give you the opportunity to do it and we really want you to do it and I'm like geez man this is really tough because this is the dream of all dreams but we can't do it right here can we do it after the show he's like no we're leaving right after he said just get on the bus come to Boston and normally I would have been like, okay, deal. Yeah, we'll just do that. We'll find a studio or a place outside in, in, in Boston and shoot it tomorrow. But two of my best friends were getting married the next night and I agreed to shoot their wedding. And oh. I did not, it was like, I cannot bail on them the night before. And totally coincidentally, the band's lighting director, his name's Dan Hadley. He was in the room too. And he's, I got introduced to him my friends who were getting married introduced me to Dan years earlier. So he knows them and he knows how amazing they are. And they're like the sweetest people ever. And I look over at him and I'm like, dude, can I, I can't, I can't bail on Dave and Kelly. He's like, "Ugh, that's a tough one, man. I wouldn't, I, I don't think you can bail on them. And meanwhile, Dave Grohl's looking at me like, are you serious? You're not going to do this. And so I said, well, let's, when do they need the picture? He said, Monday morning, first thing in the morning. So we have to do it tomorrow or Sunday. And I said, okay, cool. Where are you going to be Sunday? He said, Philadelphia. So I basically went home that night thinking I might've just blown the biggest opportunity of my life, but somehow we'll make it work. And the next night I go to the wedding, I shoot the wedding, I have an amazing time. It's two of my best friends, they're super sweet. They got married, it was great. We saw all of our friends and met, I met all their family. I felt good about the decision, still thinking that I might be able to get that Rolling Stone gig. And on the way home in the cab, I, got a, I get a call from their manager and they said, okay, we got to figure this out because tomorrow's the day. And it was also like, a, a, I think, it was, oh, it's Columbus Day, a long weekend in the US. And so, and it was on a Sunday. So I'm calling every studio in the city, nothing's open. There's no place to rent lights. There's just, it's looking really bleak. And then I finally found a place that, that the owner said, I'll come in to unlock the door for you. I didn't tell him who it was for because I just didn't want them to know who was coming in and, and tell his friends and be like, hey, you'll never believe who's coming into my studio. I just couldn't take that chance. Yeah. So I just said, it's a really important shoot. I only need the place for like an hour. And he goes, okay, it's cool. I'll come in. Um, I have lights there you can use. And by the time the band got there through traffic, they gave me 15 minutes. And it's not because they're like, you can only have 15 minutes with the band. Like we're all pals. It was more of a logistical, like we literally have to be back for sound check. Um, so I had 15 minutes. I just shot a ton of pictures. Uh, I thought, you know, I got some for the cover and then I did some individual ones for the inside of the magazine. The whole thing lasted 15 minutes. They left. They said, good job, man. We'll see you at the show. And they left. And then I sat down and almost vomited because I was positive I didn't get anything 
good enough for the cover of Rolling Stone. And I thought I just blew the biggest chance of my life. And I started flipping through the pictures. I'm like, nope, that one's not good. That one's not good. That one's not good. And then there was one where Josh was wearing a pea coat and he kind of held up the, the collar over his face so you could only see his eyes. And I was like, this is the one. It's fucking perfect. But I don't know if the band's going to like it because half of Josh's face is covered up. So I thought, well, I'm just going to hope for the best. So I went to the venue, sat down with them in the dressing room. I said, you know, didn't have time to get a ton of stuff, but there's one that really stands out. I hope you like it. And they saw it and they're like, it's fucking perfect. You hit it out of the park. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Like, Josh, you don't mind? He's like, no, it's a cool picture. Who cares? And that was it. And it just sort of happened. I know that was a longer story than I planned, but it, go, it, it could have been way longer. <laughs> no, <laughs> just that's everything incredible. That, everything that it took to get to this 15 minute super fast shoot. Um, and just my heart pounding the whole way to the venue thinking, oh man, if they don't like this one picture, we're kind of fucked. So thankfully the guys are cool and they appreciate a good photo for what it is. And it doesn't have to show all, all of your face in the, in the picture to be considered a cover so and the magazine loved it so it, it was yeah it was wild yeah. I'm sure that was wild and then to see it in print like with the letters across the top like I would have died that's insane it's yeah and then next <laughs> time I saw them I brought one with me and got them all to sign it and it was just like what is my life how does this happen hell yeah I mean that story is incredible and then just like the list of people you photographed like you know we said we weren't going to like shout out too many names, but like, how the hell can't we, we have to, but you know, I was looking through the, um, the, the gallery, the Morrison hotel gallery, just seeing, you know, Courtney love Foo Fighters, JC, Eminem. I love, there's a smashing pumpkins one. It's like in color, which I'm obsessed mm. with black and white, like all the black and whites. Like if I could shoot only black and white for the rest of my life, including a full wedding, I would. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but you're the one that, that was in color of smashing pumpkins. Um, I like, I am probably going to go back on and get it. Like I need it for my office. The colors. That was, that was oh. the one it's like two side by side. One of them's the yes. backgrounds in focus and he's totally blurry. And then the other one yes. vice versa. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just thought I'm not anti-color, like in f f color photography. It's not like I don't like doing it. It's just that I find that there has to be a reason for it. Mm. Um, I prefer everything in black and white, but if there's something spectacular happening on in real life that's in color, I'll be like, oh shit, this is a beautiful photograph in color. Mm. But um, so something like that, it was just like a really great, uh, the lighting was just kind of really crazy and weird. And it wasn't it was like, it was all different colors being spotted on his face. It wasn't just an even color. So it was something kind of unique and definitely warranted staying in color. So I'm glad you pointed that one out because not a lot of people point out my color work because there's not a lot of it to be found yeah, as yeah. far as concerts go yeah 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 no you're black and white the Foo Fighters there's a couple photos of them where you can just like see the sweat and like the light is like showing all the particles of all the things and like it just it, the entire thing is so moving um I actually shared on the Instagram stories of <laughs> I, I love the video of um the band kind of sitting there and going through images that you've taken of them and them like talking about some of those images. Um, is that, the way, oh no, sorry, go ahead. That's just gonna feel wild, right? Like to hear them talk about something you did. Yeah, it was cool. And I'll, I'll just say that it wasn't just my work. Like it was a 20, I think a, 
it was during COVID, so I think it was a 25th anniversary. They were going to do a 25th anniversary tour that didn't happen. Um, and one thing that they wanted to do to keep the fans interested and, and go back and look at, at, you know, their whole career was to do a slideshow, basically, where they all sat in their studio in LA and had a slideshow from 95 until whatever year that was, 2020, or maybe 2021 by the time they did it. Um, and so they looked at a whole bunch of photographers' work, and, and there was one section where they put I think they used three of mine and they were all sort of back to back to back. So it was like, whoa, this section with all my work. And um, so the one photo that they, that they were talking about or two photos were from this insane rainstorm that they played in, in Quebec City, where it's a festival that not a lot of people know about because it's in the sort of the French part of Canada that's not as big of a hub for the music industry as, the, as maybe Toronto or Vancouver but they have this festival every summer where it's 10 nights and it's only two or three bands a night. It's like a regular concert. So it's not like 50 stages, four bands playing at the same time from noon until one in the morning. It's very much like 10 nights of awesome concerts. And they always like, I've been to a bunch there cause my mom's from there. So I, I usually go every summer and even people that I've never heard of will draw 40,000 people minimum. Like it, that's a small night there, which is bonkers. So I think when Foo Fighters played, there were 80 plus, I think maybe 90,000 people. And it was raining so hard right before they went on. And they're like, well, we got to go. Um, so let's just do it. And then they played for three songs and they had to, cancel the show because they started to see lightning and they just pulled everyone from the stage and told everyone you got to go home and but people were so stoked to see them I don't think they played there since 1996 or something like a long 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 time ago that people were writing on Instagram like oh my god they only played three songs but it was the greatest show I've ever seen in my life like no one was mad at them for like bailing or mad at the promoters or it was just like they got it had to end the show but it was that good that they just flipped out and loved it um, and so the pictures from that night were just wild because not only was it raining like a torrential downpour, but the wind was blowing towards the stage. So all the rain was blowing onto the band and the roof of the stage, massive outdoor stage that they built for this thing. The roof is slanted towards the front. So all the rain coming from the roof was falling down in front of the band and being blown onto the band. So it was like two rainstorms raining on them at the same time. I, like I've never seen anything like it before. Well, and I'm sure one... it was a dream to photograph. <laughs> well, it was crazy because I just kind of, I was standing in the wings so that my camera wouldn't get too damaged and thought, you know, I've got the whole show to sort of figure out it might stop raining or whatever. And I thought, fuck it, I'm gonna walk through the curtain of rain because that's it was basically a curtain falling, like a sheet falling from the roof of just water, like a waterfall. So I ran through that, took some pictures from the front, and then next thing you know, they Dave was gone. Like they just took everybody, like they had to grab him because he was still in on crutches from his broken foot. So he just got carried off and the show was over. And we were in the the dressing room after and I was just looking through pictures on my camera on the screen on the back and I saw this one I was like holy shit I got all the guys in the band getting completely drenched 
they're laughing because it was just such an insane moment and it was such a great picture i'm sitting on the couch next to dave i'm like dude look at this and he's like oh my god dude give that to me right now i gotta post it on instagram and i was like i don't have my computer here so i can't take it off of my off of my camera so he was like okay just hold your camera still he took a picture of the screen on the back of my camera with his phone and posted that to instagram and it just exploded and it's my most viewed photo ever and it was like a photo of a photo so when they showed that one during the that slideshow they obviously had some moments to share about that because it was just such a wild night um and then four how many years later i think five years later they played it again and i was at my cousin's place and i'm in the pool and we're just hanging out in his backyard and there's not a cloud in the sky. I'm like, oh, tonight's going to be such a great show. There's no rain. Nothing can go wrong. Get to the venue. They have the weather report printed out and pinned, like with radar and everything, images pinned to the wall in the production office. Zero percent chance of rain. Like not 10, not 20, zero percent chance of rain. And by the time the band showed up, Dave gets off the bus and the sky went black it was i don't even know where they came from like there was zero chance and it just like the clouds just rolled in dave starts walking towards me he looks at me and shakes his head he's like i fucking hope it rains like how crazy would that be <laughs> and so then when the opening band played it started pouring like almost as badly as it was five years before and we were just laughing like what the fuck you can't cancel another one due to rain and as they were walking towards the stage skies cleared up and they played and the crowd loved it because they'd been waiting for that show for so long but it was just so wild like i've never seen a weather forecast change so quickly from zero to 100 and just the look on dave's face laughing being like i just i fucking hope it rains it'll just make it that much better like it it's impossible yeah, it's it's rolling with the punches at its finest. Um, yeah. Speaking of Foo Fighters, um, I was reading a quote, the, the director of award-winning um, documentary of the uh, Foo Fighters, Back and Forth. Mm -hmm. um, the, the director, James, he quoted, how can I possibly articulate how blown away I am by your work? Your images dramatically changed my film. Like hearing that, how does that make you feel? Like, can you even wrap your, your feelings around that? I mean, it's totally surreal because you're, you're thinking, how can something that I did impact another artist's work? Like it, it, it was one of the, maybe the nicest thing anyone's ever said about my work ever. Mm. And it was, it was, it was just another thing that I think that you're, particularly your audience will appreciate is that I took a chance on something that led to something bigger than I had imagined. And that is, I got an email from uh, the band's management saying, hey, there's this uh, director's doing a documentary about Foo Fighters. And um, he saw this one picture of yours that he wants to license. And I was like, okay, cool. So they gave me the, I think it was like a, one of the producers and the editors, um, or no, sorry, one of the producers emails to send it to. So I sent them an email saying, hey, by the way, I've also been shooting them for like, I think at that point it was over 15 years. So I've got I've got a lot more where that came from. If you're interested, I don't know if you're <laughs> looking for anything else. 
And they said, oh, you know what? Like, we're pretty much locked. Like the film comes out next month and we're pretty much locked, but you know, send us a few. So I sent them a bunch <laughs> and uh, I get an email back saying, okay, we've chosen these 43 or 44 images. Can you please send them to us in high res? And I'm like, what? I, I really only meant to like, you know, I sent them a sampling from every show I'd shot over 15 years, not, not that many from each show because I didn't want to just be like, here's a million pictures. And I expected, like, I was hoping that they might pick like one or two more. And I think the total came to 43 or 44. And it, it yeah, the editor wrote to me and said, dude, we're re-editing the film to incorporate more of your work. And I was like, what are you? I just felt almost guilty. I was like, I don't, you guys finally edited this great movie and now you're rework, you're, you know, going back into it to re-edit, to include my stuff. Like I felt kind of, yeah, I felt guilty, but super proud at the same time, obviously. And they premiered it at South by Southwest. So I went down there just so I could be part of the experience. I thought this is never going to happen to me ever again. So I went down there and I, I uh, the director went up and spoke. So I saw what he looked like and I kept my eye out for him later that evening. And I just went and introduced myself and he was like, dude, I can't thank you enough. Like it changed the whole pacing and the feeling of the second half of the, of the, of the movie. And I'm, I'm so thankful. And I was like, dude, you don't understand what it means to me to hear that you re-edited your movie after the, the producer told me that it was pretty much locked. Um, and the point of this story is just to say, you know, they say, don't take no for an answer. And I was sort of like not being pushy, but I just said, well, you know, I'm just going to send them anyway, if that's okay. And you, not knowing what would happen, I thought maybe they'd, like I said, they'd throw one in or something. Um, so it's just, yeah, you never fucking know. Like, I don't even, I can't stress that enough. Every, every good thing that's ever happened to me was based on a gut impulse. Um, I could have just said, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, sorry, I'm too late. I wish I would have known sooner. I'm stoked I have one in the movie. But I just thought, well, you know, well, what does what it hurt? If they can take the email and not look at them. They can look at them, whatever. It's just, but I don't want to leave that on the table. Like I don't want to, I don't want to not send those in. I, I say that phrase all the time. You never leave it on the table. And yeah. I love that you just said all that. Like every, every story you keep telling, I'm like, I need to add like more time to this episode because I want to know literally everything. <laughs> Your stories are fucking awesome. And I, I think that it, they're important for not only like to say that, you know, go after your dreams, don't take no for an answer, do it, do it, do it. But it's also like, you can achieve the impossible. And then once you achieve that, it's like, okay, what is next? And aim for something even higher. Um, mm -hmm. Which now makes me think like, you know, that feeling when probably you had this with Paul McCartney and then you, so you, you think about like the biggest of the big and then you do that. So then it's like, okay, well, what's next? It's almost like mm -hmm. as an artist, part of you thinks, shit, I've like peaked and nothing's going to give me that same kick. And then the other half of you is like, no, fuck that. What is next even higher? And it's got to be even more incredible. Like, how do you feel around that theory? Oh man, it, that particular one is a tough one because that was, like I said, my answer, anytime I got interviewed or if, if a friend would say, what do you, you know, what do you dream of doing? And I'd say, I want to work with Paul McCartney. And I remember the day that I told my best friend, Mark, he was at, over at my apartment and I was like, dude, you're never going to believe who called. And he's like, who? I said, Paul McCartney, he wants me to come to New York. And he's like, 
his instant reaction wasn't like, dude, that's fucking awesome. He was like, oh man, what are you going to do after that? Like, how are you going to top that? And it was already like anxiety provoking because my best friend, his initial reaction was the same one I had was like, what am I going to do to top that? And then I didn't have an answer. I was like, I don't know, man, I'm just going to go do it. It's going to be awesome. And I'll I'll think about later, later, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, at the the last night that I I think I was out with them for five nights and on the last one, uh, we were kind of gathered, the crew and everybody was gathered in the, the bar at this hotel where we're staying at in Montreal. And I thought, oh, I really hope Paul shows up because I want to thank him for this huge life-changing opportunity. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw him walk in. I thought, okay, he's here. So before I leave, I have to find him and go say thank you. And I'm sitting at a table with a couple of people. It was like, no, it was like one other person. It was a table for two. And then I get nudged on my left and I look over and it was Paul pulling up a chair to our table for two and just like right up against me. I'm like, oh shit, this is crazy. And he was just like, I just wanted to make sure that you had a good time. I want to hear like, what did tell me how it was for you? You know, and it was everybody good to you. I said, dude, you don't understand. Like your crew treated me like royalty. I can't thank you enough. Like everything was just it was a dream and I got some great photos and um we sat and talked for about a half an hour to be honest and I was just thinking I'm not going to stop talking until he stops talking because this you know I I don't want to be the one to break this up he'll he'll get up and leave when he wants to get up and leave Mm. and somehow the topic came up of like you know I think I said when I told my best friend I was doing this his reaction was well how are you going to top that and Paul just kind of says well what do you how do you feel about that? And I said, honestly, I thought about it two ways. Either this is it for me and I, I'm just gonna, nothing will ever match it. Or I can look at this as a, a new beginning. Like this is the door that is opening everything I've ever wanted. Like it just, I'm looking at this as something that will kickstart the next phase of my life. And he was like, patted me on the back. He's like, good for you. You know, you can't think of, you can't think of, your your goal as the final goal there's always something next he said it's like when you're 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 climbing a hill or you're climbing a mountain and you, you see the peak and it's right there and then you finally get up to the top and you're like oh man i'm here now what and then you realize there's another peak like you just couldn't see it from where you were before mm. and there's always something there's always something to strive for and he was sort of he was very excited to hear that i i i sided with that option instead of just being like well Paul I don't know man this is it for me um and he's just such a a supportive dude like he he didn't have to come sit next to me and ask me how my week was or ask me how do you feel about that like this dilemma that you're having like he didn't he didn't have to do any of that but he did and he's he's just the best that's incredible I love saying you know the new beginning feeling like that's great I don't think anyone should ever say that like I've made it I'm peaked like I'm just gonna coast from here I've done it because like we've touched on earlier too, like once you get in things, you don't know what that other thing is going to lead to. Um, and we just got to keep going. We've just got to do and shake. Um, real quick, I have to ask you, what are the Beastie Boys like? <laughs> I mean, I've met them a few times, but we never had any kind of like in-depth long conversations. Like I, I, I was lucky enough to have befriended 
uh, Mix Master Mike, their DJ, and Money Mark, the keyboard player, and Alfredo Ortiz, who's a super good pal of mine. He's their drummer. And just through hanging out with them, I've had some opportunities to like, for example, we all went out for dinner one night and they said, can we bring our friend Dustin? They're like, sure. So I was there, but it was awkward. And it was, you know, I wasn't. They're right. a very tight. They're a very tight group. And I've liked them since I was 12 years old. They were like my favorite band from, yeah, when I was 12, basically. <laughs> so it was like weird. I was sort of like, whoa, hey, Mike D, what do you think of it? Like, there's no. It was a weird setting, you know? And then there was another time where same kind of thing, they, they had a day off here. So they all went to a movie and Fredo said, do you want to come with us? And I'm like, I don't know, is it okay with them? I don't really know them. And, and they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so we were at a movie, so we didn't really talk. And I've, I've ridden in vans with them to venues, but it's never been like a, to, I was always too nervous to really start a conversation because I know how tight a group they are and that I was there as one of their bandmates' friends tagging along. I wasn't really, you know. Yeah. But I can tell you that they're fucking cool as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I can imagine. It's just like a colorful experience in general being in their presence. It's, yeah. And like I said, I think that the... I don't get nervous a lot, but I was nervous around them just because of how long I had been listening to them and I think that that's like out of any artist I've ever met they're the ones that I was intimidated by because I know how cool they are and I know how tight-knit their group is and I know that right now I'm the only person in this room who hasn't known them for 25 years and sees them every day and it's just a I don't know it's like an awkward I get awkward let's just put it yeah. <laughs> no I can totally relate it's why we are not shooting any videos for this podcast because I literally cannot put two feet in front of the other sentences when I am face-to-face -face having conversations so yeah. Yeah. but I know like one one really cool thing I will say is that um Adam Yauk was very hands-on uh creatively I mean obviously like they all are but for visually when they when they put together their anthology album um they just looked at all like I, I had sent them I had given them prints from a show in Vancouver um, during the Hello Nasty tour in 1998. I took some pictures and I went down to see them in Oakland because Mike and Fredo were like, why don't you just come down? We're playing two shows. So I went down there and before one of the shows, I gave them each an envelope with some 11 by 14 prints. And so you never know what's gonna happen if they're gonna leave them behind or take them with them. But you know, those guys are, are you know, they're pretty genuine, I think, in their appreciation for art. And um, and then a couple of years later, they're working on their anthology book uh, to go with the with the album. And I get a call from their creative department saying, um, you know, Yauk was going through a bunch of prints from over the years and he saw a pile of the ones that you gave him a couple of years ago and he really likes this one and he wants to put it in the, in the anthology. And I was like, to me, that just was way cooler than a label saying, hey, we want to license this picture for something. It was Adam Yauk was looking through all these pictures and he saw the ones that you gave him in, in Oakland. So I know that he hung on to them, you know, and to me that just meant a lot. And the fact that they used one was even better, but just knowing that somebody that I've admired my whole life and really respected, it just shows that he took, he, you know, he, he took that envelope and he brought it home and he kept them and he, 
put them amongst all the other insane photographers and, and photos of their career when it came time to looking at something for a, an important project of theirs. So I will say Adam Yauk, the experiences that I've had with him have been very, um, they just meant a lot because he, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know how to describe it, but he sort of took a liking to something that I had, um, however brief it was. And I, yeah, I always felt really strongly about that. Yeah, it sounds like it unfolded naturally. And that's props to you. Congratulations. That's a really, that's a big deal um, to be recognized for your art like that, to be for somebody, for another artist to want to use that to help tell their story or tell a moment is definitely one of the highest compliments as a photographer, I personally think so. Well, absolutely. If the person in the photo wants to use one of your photos to represent them, that's, yeah, that's the hugest compliment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. I feel like we could go on forever. I'm going to wrap this up, but I always like to end with like a little advice column. Um, I just kind of read you a couple questions and within like, with like two sentence answers, just to like advice you would give someone. So, oh man, I listened to these at the end of, uh, of one of the interviews that I listened to and I was like, oh shit, I hope she doesn't ask me these questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, is it? Yeah. Dave Gutter's episode. <laughs> yeah. No, these are, these are pretty, pretty, uh, simple. The first okay. one. Okay. The first one is if someone is like completely nervous to come out of their shell and just like leap into what they know could be a really good opportunity, but they're like, I'd rather stay in my safe, comfortable nest where nothing can get me. What would you tell them to do and why? Okay, not to make this more complicated, but there are two different <laughs> scenarios. Like, are you talking about quitting your job and moving to another country? Or are you talking about taking advantage of a, a, an opportunity that's right in front of you that could lead to other things? All right. Are you love. talking packing up your life? and? Yeah, no, I love that question. Okay, let's say we've got Susie and she's like working this nine to five. It's Monday through Friday. It's so fucking draggy. I'm talking like she sits in the same break room every day. There's a tablecloth that has birds on it. Like it's just so lame. She knows that there is a creative process that she could get into, but she's nervous to leave the nine to five because what if this creative project doesn't pay the bills or what if she fails? What do you tell her to do? I mean, being the sort of, I take risks, but I don't put it all on the line, you know? So I wouldn't say quit your job, fuck it, figure it out later. I would say uh, really do some research into this other project that you think that you could get involved in. And if it's something that you really, really wanna do, push as far as you can until they say, okay, you need to quit your job. Or you realize that in order to fulfill that other passion, you need to quit your job. But, you know, I wouldn't advise somebody to just say, Hey, I've always wanted to draw. I'm just going to quit my job as a doctor to go see if there's a good jobs <laughs> drawing. Like, you know, look, be realistic and look at it and, and, but really, really make the effort to, to at least see what the options are. Don't, don't sit there dreaming and regret it for the rest of your life. You know? Yeah. I think that's an important, but it's thing good to, to it's good to have a safety net, but don't yeah. let that hold you back either. Yeah. Don't look back and regret that you should have done it. Okay, another thing. What are a couple things that someone can do when there is like high intense pressure and they are super nervous to do something? Um, 
They know they're going to do it. It's going to be great. What, what is something that you do when you're like under an intense amount of pressure? Well, I think the most pressure that I feel is if it's a once, like a, if it's my first opportunity to work with someone that I've always wanted to work with. And I think I have to make this perfect. Otherwise they won't hire me back or they won't like me or, you know, you just, you feel like you have to, you, you can't just do good enough. You have to make it perfect. Otherwise you've wasted this opportunity. What if I'm not good enough? All those doubts. I realized at one point, I think a friend told me, they're like, dude, you, you, you already, they already like you, like they're hiring you. So it's not like they hired some random photographer hoping that they would do a good job. They hired you because they like what you do. So as long as you do what you know how to do, they're going to like it. Mm. And that was a big stress reliever for me because I always thought, no, I have to be like, everything I do has to be better than the last and it has to be different and I have to do what they want. And then I realized, oh yeah, the reason that they hired me is because they like what I do and what they want is what I do. It's what I know how to do. So um, just go do your thing in your own style, the way you've always done it. And they will like it because that's what they're hoping for. Mm. And just sort of having that knowledge ahead of time helps me so much because um, it takes out the worry of what if they don't like what I do. Yeah, no, I love that. I think I'm taking that with me for the rest of my life. Anytime I'm nervous with the camera <laughs> in my hand, I'm going to say, okay, the camera that's in your hand, they're here because they hired you. They know that you can do it. So just go do it. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're someone, it's really rare that you're going to get hired to shoot someone by someone who's never seen your work. Yeah. And if they chose you over someone else, it's because they like your work. And if you have your own style, um, and that's what they're drawn to, then you can't do anything other than that. Yeah, yeah, no, you exactly. Know? Which leads me to the last question organically. What would you tell a photographer that's just starting out? Like, what do they need to do? What do they need to know? What's your advice for them? Oh, this is tough because for me, it was always don't get too caught up in what other photographers are doing um because you're always going to think that someone's better than you you know you're never going to be like oh I don't care what other people are doing I'm the best like you're always going to compare yourself to others and sometimes that can get you down because you'll be like I'm never going to be as good as this person or that person but you don't have to be you know that is just do what you do and if you you know the people that like what you do are going to think that you are the best they're and so just put your head down and do your thing and focus on developing your own style and, and make sure that everything that you do makes you happy, which sounds so cliche, but the reason that I bring it up is it's tough now because there's, you know, when I got started, the only way to look at competition was to go to the magazine store and look at magazines and be like, oh, I really wish I hadn't looked at that magazine because I saw how good that person is. They're so much better than me. There's no way I'll make it in that magazine. Where now you can't not look at other people's work. Like it's impossible in this day and age to go a full day without looking at another person's photograph, whether it's a professional photographer, an influencer, whatever, you know, just people, your friends posting pictures from their trip to wherever. It's just everywhere. So it's that much harder to really believe in yourself and not compare yourself to other people. But now more than ever, it's the only advice that I can really give is really don't let 
seeing other people's work and thinking that it's better than yours, don't let that get you down because there's, it's subjective. You think that's better than your work, someone else might like your work better than what you just saw. Mm. And there's, there's room for everybody, you know? It's, it's, uh, it's so easy to get, to get low self-esteem these days um, comparing yourself, but there's just a point where you have to say, you know what, if I really wanna do this, I should focus that energy on creating instead of comparing. Mm. And that's always the advice that I gave people, but now it's just so much harder. It's so much easier said than done. Yeah, no, it's that's still, it's still something I believe firmly in. It's just really tough to do. Yeah, it's tough to do, but it's a good reminder, you know, create over compare. Like, I love that phrase. I might steal that from you. <laughs> um, I don't think I, I've ever said it quite like that. And after I did, I thought, oh, that's got a good root to it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really fucking awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Dustin, for your time. It's been a pleasure. I am so inspired by all of your work and all of your things. If you're looking to follow Dustin, I'm going to tag all of the ways to find him and follow him and links to his stuff in the show notes. So be sure that you do yourself a favor, go follow some new fresh creative things that are going to ignite your entire being. I promise. Uh, Dustin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, too, for reaching out. Um, it, it means a lot to me that you, that you thought enough of my work to want to have uh, a conversation like this. And, um, I've listened to a few of your, your podcasts and the interviews are always just very natural. And you ask some fantastic questions that make you, that make the person being interviewed think differently mm. about their typical sort of answers to questions. And I, I thought, uh, I just thought that was great. And I'm really, I'm really happy that you asked me to do this. Hell yeah. That means a lot. Thank you so, so, so much. And um, I'll see you out there. See you soon. Well, that was pretty cool. I could have gone on for a whole nother hour. His stories were fun, fascinating, inspiring, and totally gave me a sense of feeling driven and wanting to do something badass. Thank you so much for sharing all of those stories with us, Dustin. I know that I probably can speak for many that your stories are very inspiring. And the fact that you have just reached such a level of achievement from the creative standpoint is fascinating. Hats off to you. And I love that you have the mindset of this is incredible, but it's just the beginning. It's like, look out world. Let's see what I can do next. I'll be following along. Thanks for hanging out with us. And to all of you listening, I hope that you found some kind of spark. Uh, send the email, send the message, reach out to the person, book that gig if you want it, create that art if you want it. Like Dustin said, you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket while you're getting started. Feel out the waters, do your research, get right with what it is, and it will lead you there to completion. You can be doing what you want before you know it if you just start. Whew. I feel like I'm so fired up from that episode. Really, really, really excited. Stay tuned for the next hang session. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, for listening, for the love and the support. Be well.